Well, hey, good morning, Bridge Fam. How you doing today? You can see me, but I can't see you. There we go. You do look good, though, now that I can see you. Welcome this morning. I asked the guys to hang with me here for just a second. I, first of all, just want to take a moment and welcome all of our guests today and say thank you so much for being here at the bridge. We're thrilled that you're with us. If this is your very first time at the church, we hope you feel at home this morning. I hope that you enjoy being in service. You hope you meet some of the great people that call the bridge their home church. But above all else, we hope that you connect with God this morning, that you sense his presence, his Holy Spirit at work in your life. And um, I just want to take a moment. My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here and let you know that we're grateful you're here today. When you chose to come to the bridge, when you got up this morning and you made the decision to come, that means a lot to us. So thank you so much for being here. Maybe somebody invited you here today. We're glad that you're here. Maybe you're looking for a new home church. We're glad that you're here. Whatever the case may be, however you got here, welcome. We're glad you're here. Um, Before you go today, stop by the info center after service. See our team that's there. They would love to serve you, answer any questions you might have, and just tell you a little bit more about the church, how you can get plugged in and connected. But above all else, we hope that you connect with God this morning. So welcome to the bridge. Can you join me this morning, Bridge family? And let's just put our hands together and welcome all of our guests to church today. All right, let's do an exercise quick. Everybody do me a favor, stand to your feet if you will. Oh yeah, stand up, stand up, stand up. Get the blood flowing a little bit. I really had it in my heart this morning during worship in both services just to pray about something. I have met so many people over the last few days talking about how they've been sick. They got people at home that are sick, family members, friends, coworkers, whatever it might be. There's a lot of stories right now about people who are sick. And I've just been hearing all of it. In fact, I got four family members that are not here this morning because they're all homesick. And I just thought to myself, you know, we deal with these things in life, but I believe God's our healer. Does anybody believe that this morning? So sometimes the enemy comes in like a flood, but scripture says that, that God will raise up a standard against it. And we overcome by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. So this morning, can we just pray and just pray against sickness, number one, take authority over it, number two, and just pray for God to bring healing in our lives. Can we ask for that this morning? Would you join me? Father, we thank you that you are a healer. We thank you that you are good. We thank you for everything that you've provided for us through our atonement at the cross. God, we believe that by your stripes, we were healed at the cross of Calvary. So today we choose to stand in that and walk in that and we declare it over our lives. Satan, you are a liar and we take authority over you today because Jesus gave it to us. He paid the price at the cross so that we could have health and wholeness within our salvation. So today we stand on that promise. We take authority over sickness and say it must go today in Jesus' name. For people who are battling small sickness, that it must go. For people who are battling larger sickness or terminal illness, that it would go today in Jesus' name, that healing would manifest in people's bodies. We pray this today, not because of our own ideas and our own wills and things that we've conjured up, but because your word, Lord, tells us that we can take authority over these things. So we stand on that promise of healing today and ask that it be done and flow in people's bodies in Jesus' name. And finally, Father, standing to our feet, we give attention to your word this morning. We honor your word. We know it has the power to change our lives, so we give it space and permission to do that. We ask, Lord, that you would come in and by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would speak to us, change us, and make us more into the image of Christ this day in Jesus' name. And if you believe that, everybody said, Amen. amen. Come on, let's give God praise one more time this morning. Amen, you can be seated. Thanks, guys. Appreciate you. Make me sound a whole lot better. (laughs) All right, hey, if you got your Bible, meet me this morning in the book of Judges in the Old Testament, Judges chapter 8. 
Judges 8. Today we're going to wrap up this series that we've been in for the last, I guess it's four weeks now, Legacies Over Legends. Legacies Over Legends. And we're talking about how God wants us as his people, as the people of God, to build a legacy in and through our lives, not just leave a legend behind. One of the things we talked about at the outset of this series is how a legacy is something that is given and passed on from one generation to the next so that each succeeding generation can tell a testimony of a shared experience that they had with God. But a legend, of course, is a non-verifiable or non-historical story, an account that's given from one generation to the next that they can only say they heard because they never experienced it for themselves. We as the people of God want to build legacies and not just leave legends of the things God did in days gone by. We want the next generation to have an encounter and an experience with God for themselves. Can anybody say amen to that? So that's what we're called to do. And that's what we've been talking about. And we've been looking at the life of Gideon. And I don't at all want to go back and try to, you know, re-preach any of the things that we've done over the last few weeks. I would highly encourage you to listen to Pastor Gary's message from last week because he talked about really the most uh, famous picture in the life of Gideon, which is this great battle where God whittles down the army of Israel from tens of thousands to 300 men who go and win supernatural victory against the Midianites, their oppressors. And he preached a really great message about that last week. So I would encourage you to go back and listen to it. You can do that on our podcast or on YouTube as well. But I do just have to throw in this quick side note. Last Sunday, I was sitting on the front row in the 930 service, and I kind of had this, these messages or this series of messages in my heart for the last few weeks, and so we started to work them out. And I was thinking there would be two or three messages tops And then as the calendar kind of fell with our Sunday schedules, Pastor Gary said, you know, I should just go ahead and teach on the battle, you know, with Gideon and the 300. So that's what he spoke about last week. And he said, you know, it wouldn't be a complete series unless we actually talked about that. And I said, all right. So I sat down in first service and I looked over at my wife as Pastor Gary was preaching that message. And I just laughed and I said, wow. And she said, what? And I said, you know, I've been on staff here for over nine years at the bridge, and there's been lots of times where I got to preach as a part of his series, but this time, my dad is preaching my series. <laughs> oh, how the turntables have turned. <laughs> but that was fun for me, and I was really excited to hear his message last week, so go back and listen to it, because it was excellent. But at the end of this great battle, God gives miraculous, supernatural victory to Israel through Gideon. And it's right there in that picture, after this victory, you would think that the nation of Israel, the people of Israel, would turn their hearts to God, that they would put him on his rightful place as Lord and King over their nation. But instead, we see the same pattern continue to unfold in the book of Judges that we see throughout the Old Testament, where God brings victory, and people are compelled to follow God until they fall into their own idolatry and turn back to their sinful ways, and pretty soon, a generation dies, and the next generation does not know the Lord. It's an incredibly sad pattern that we see, and you would think that at some point they would learn the lesson, but it doesn't seem to happen, even after this miraculous victory that God gives Gideon in Israel. So it's right there that I want to pick up the story in Judges 8. Look with me at verse 22. It says there, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon after this victory, Come and rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son, for you have delivered us, you, Gideon, have delivered us, you, Gideon, have delivered us from the hand of Midian. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Now push pause right there for a moment. Gideon has the great victory as this leader 
of the Israelite army, and truly it's God who's actually brought them this victory. They come to Gideon and say, Gideon, we want you to rule over us, not just you, but your son and your son's son. Isn't it interesting how they suddenly are talking about, we want to build our own new legacy, and we want you to be our leader. But Gideon, in his wisdom, excuse me, Gideon, in his wisdom, speaks up and says, no, 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 it's not the Lord's will for me to rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And it's important to point this out because at this point in the story, Israel is still living under a theocracy. It's government by God, theos meaning God. And so that was God's will and his plan and intention in the Old Testament that it would remain that way. So when they come to Gideon wanting to create their own legacy, Gideon still has enough wisdom to say, no, no, that's not God's will, so I'm not gonna fall for that. They wanted their own legacy, but Gideon says, no, God shall be your legacy, and that's what you need to pass on to the next generation. Let's keep going. Look at verse 24. Yet Gideon said to them, I would request this one thing of you. Now this is where Gideon's wisdom starts to fall to the wayside and things get off the rails. I would actually, in fact, request one thing of you, that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. For they had gold earrings. This is speaking about the Midianites that they had just conquered because they were Ishmaelites. So they wore these golden, this golden jewelry. And after killing the entire army, they took their jewelry as personal spoils. So go on to verse 25. They said, we will surely give them to you, Gideon. So they spread out a garment, and every one of them threw an earring there from his spoil. The weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. More on that in a minute. Now, look at verse 27. Gideon made it into an ephod. Now, an, an ephod was specifically in the Old Testament, was a priestly garment that the priests would wear. That's what we know an ephod to be. But practically speaking, it was like this piece of clothing or a garment that would go over one's shoulders and hang around their upper torso. And that's kind of the picture of what an ephod was. So Gideon takes all this gold and he makes it into an ephod. It goes on and says, and he placed it in his city, Ophrah, and all Israel, watch these words, all of Israel played the harlot with it there so that it became a snare to Gideon and to his household. Look at what Gideon is setting up for the next generation. Verse 28. So Midian was subdued before the sons of Israel, and they did not lift up their heads anymore. In other words, they were defeated, and the land was undisturbed for 40 years in the days of Gideon. Now, skip with me down to verse 33. Just a little bit more passage of Scripture I want to read to you, and then we're going to bring this all together. Then it came about, verse 33, as soon as Gideon was dead, so Gideon has passed on, that the sons of Israel, notice these words again, the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals, talking about these false gods, and made Baal beareth their lowercase g, God. Thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side. Nor did they show kindness to the household of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, in accordance with all the good that he had done to Israel. Now, I read a relatively long passage of scripture right there and cut through it a little bit because I want to paint as clear a picture of, as I can of the idolatry that Israel is falling back into. And it's so important that you see this because if you go back to where we started this series in Judges chapter 6, Gideon is threshing wheat in a wine press. He's doing a high thing in a low place because he's hiding from his oppressors. And we talked about how that was a picture of oppression. 
All of that was the situation that Israel found themselves in because they had turned to idolatry, created gods for themselves, and stopped serving the one true God of Israel. And here we are in this passage of Scripture at the end of Gideon's life, and Scripture points out that the same pattern was beginning to repeat itself. If you're taking notes this morning, we've been talking about building legacies, not just leaving legends. Here's the first thought I want to give you if you're taking notes today, okay? You ready for this? Everybody with me? Everybody with me? All right, number one, here you go. After every victory, build an altar, not an idol. After every victory, build an altar, not an idol. Now, quick flashback and reminder. Again, Judges 6, when the angel of the Lord and then eventually Jesus visits Gideon, what we see there is he says, you are going to conquer Midian as one man. But the next instruction he gives him isn't to go gather the army and it's not to go fight a battle. The very first instruction he gives him, Gideon, you need to go tear down all the idols in your hometown and you need to build an altar to the Lord and make a sacrifice to me. So Gideon does that obediently. The Lord blesses it. And then the Lord's favor is upon Gideon from that point forward. So that's the picture of the altar. Let's set that aside for a moment and we'll come back to that, okay? At this point, Gideon and the nation, or excuse me, Gideon's family and the nation of Israel are beginning to fall back into idolatry, and we see it play out in two specific ways, okay? First, Scripture tells us that Gideon built this ephod, this piece of garment. Now, I don't know if anybody actually wore it. Scripture makes it sound like it was just simply put on display, but it was this ephod that was made out of 1,700 shekels of gold that was formed from those pieces of jewelry or those earrings. So, I had to go back and kind of do my homework on this because, to be honest, I hadn't really recalled what's a shekel, was it a currency, what was it? Well, a shekel was really a measure of weight, and one shekel was a little bit less than a half ounce. So if you took 1,700 shekels and you do the math correctly, what you end up with is between 41 and 42 pounds of gold. And in today's value, that was equal to about 1.1, 1.2 million dollars worth of gold. So that was like Gideon's spoil from victory after defeating the Midianites. Now, how many of you know $1.1 million probably went a whole lot further in Gideon's day than it would today? So Gideon's loaded now. Gideon's set. He's good. Except he doesn't take it and exchange it for cash because that's not the way things worked. And there's nothing in Scripture that leads us to believe that Gideon took it and said, well, hey, you guys have honored me. This is my retirement. I'm selling off into the sunset. It doesn't say that at all. It says he took the gold that he had gathered and he built it, made it, fashioned it into an ephod. And it was as if this ephod went on display in his hometown. And scripture says that Israel played the harlot with that thing that became an idol. And not only that, it became a trap or a snare or an idol in Gideon's own family. That's one picture of idolatry. But now the other picture we see here is that after this great victory, the people of Israel and potentially even Gideon's own family has started to build and erect these statues to the false god Baal and other Baals, you know, kind of looking at the god and goddess lineage that they might have believed in that the Canaanites had handed to them. So they build these false gods, these shrines to false gods, and it paints these two pictures of idolatry. Now, here's what I want to show you. The writer of Judges writes this so explicitly so that we can understand the way God saw this. It says, Israel played the harlot with the ephod, and then it goes on a second time and says, Israel again played the harlot with the Baals or with these false gods. I'm just gonna be really straightforward with you this morning. If you go back and you look in other translations of the Old Testament, what you see here is there are other words used. 
It literally says in other translations that Israel prostituted themselves. And other translations even say that Israel, the King James says Israel, hoard itself. Now some of you are like, Zach, my kids are in here. That's why we have bridge kids and bridge youth. This is the adult service, okay? And guess what? The Bible's pretty straightforward, so we need to tell the truth. But I think the writer of Judges, traditionally it was believed to be Samuel, we're not 100% sure who it was, but I think the writer of Judges right here is trying to make a very, very clear point that in the eyes of God, when Israel brought these idols into their life, it was as if they were taking on the shame, the filth, and the disgust of that act of prostitution and whoring themselves. And I think the writer wants us to understand that in the eyes of God, Israel was playing an incredibly dirty, sinful, unclean role in their lives with these idols. But here's the other picture you gotta see. And again, I'm, I'm being kind of explicit also, and I apologize not to offend or draw attention. I'm, I'm just going from strict scripture here, okay? But we all know what a prostitute is. And when you see that word in scripture, you have to understand the exchange that's taking place. A prostitute literally sells not a product, they sell themselves. And what they get in exchange is monetary compensation. But acts of sinfulness and unclean, lewd acts, over time, you might be selling yourself thinking that you're gaining something, but what you find over time is that you're literally losing your own soul. And the picture that the writer is painting for us here is that Israel was giving itself away and giving itself away and giving itself away to these idols, thinking that these false gods, thinking that this ephod was giving them shelter, safety, provision, protection, when all in all, it was giving them absolutely nothing in return. Now stop and think about the idols that we build in our lives sometimes. We build them because we think they're giving us a sense of protection, safety, security, and provision, when all the while they're giving us absolutely nothing in return and taking our souls in the process. Everybody see this picture this morning? The writer of Judges wanted us to understand that because that's the way God saw idolatry in this picture. And we have to make a decision in our lives of what we're going to do with the idols around us. Because if we wanna leave a legacy to the next generation, we need to choose not to build idols but to build altars. Let's go back and talk about that for a minute. Every time, or not every time, but there are many examples in the Old Testament of Old Testament saints who would have a great victory, and what would they do? They would stop and build an altar to the Lord. It was an offer of, altar of sacrifice and an altar of praise and worship. And they would say, this is what God did for me here. They would build that altar, they would offer the sacrifice, they would leave it there, and every time they would come back by it, it would serve as a reminder of the goodness and faithfulness of God. And you go back to the first instructions that the angel gave to Gideon, it was like he was saying, Gideon, you gotta clear out these idols and you gotta fill your life up with altars. And we as the people of God have to choose to be altar people, not idol people, if we wanna leave a legacy of God's goodness to the next generation. I'll tell you a quick story that I think illustrates this well, and then we'll move on to the next thing. This is one of the big places I wanna spend some time. As I've said to our church family earlier this year, my grandfather passed away, one of my two grandfathers, he was my last remaining living grandfather, and he passed away in June back in Arkansas where I was born. And so we went back for the funeral and for the service. And you know, my cousins, when we all got together, you know, we all talked about our memories and the things that have been given to us over the years and that we'll take with us the rest of our lives and hopefully impart to the next generation. We were very fortunate because in our family there wasn't a lot of infighting over possessions and heirlooms and inheritances and anything like that. It was all pretty cool and everybody was good with each other. But 
You know, there were a few questions about, well, who's going to get that guitar? Or who's going to get the shotguns? You know, that kind of stuff. And we're talking about these things, and we were just having casual conversation. It was all nice and cordial and friendly. And I thought back to the most valuable times I spent with my grandparents, and I told my cousins, I said, there's only one thing I want. I want the breakfast table that's in the breakfast nook by their kitchen because they had the same table my whole life that sat in the breakfast nook. And even before I was born, they had that same table. It was at that table that they prayed for me before I was born. It was at that table they prayed for my wife before I met her. It was at that table that they prayed for my kids before they were born. And even all those years later that we got to sit at that table, my wife and I, and talk with them, it wasn't just consumed with breakfast and coffee in the newspaper. It was consumed with stories of God's goodness and the way that he had taken care of them throughout the years. The miracles God had done, the way he had provided, the way he'd shown grace and mercy in spite of their own mistakes and imperfections. And we got to spend moments like that at my grandparents' breakfast table just the same way we got to do it with Ashley's grandparents. And I have amazing memories of that. When I thought back to the one thing I would want to be able to keep one day, I realized it might not be the, stylish, the most stylish table that you've ever laid eyes on, you know? Probably needs to be refinished. Probably needs to be fixed up a little bit. But to me, that wasn't just a breakfast table. It was an altar. Because I have amazing memories of sitting around that table and having them reach over, grab hands, and say, thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done for us. Thank you, Jesus, for all you've provided for us. Thank you, Jesus, that you saved us. Today, we lift up our family. We lift up the kids, the grandkids, the great-grandkids. Whatever situations are going on in people's lives, I will always recall that table, not as being a table, but being an altar. And if we want to leave a legacy of God's goodness to the next generation, we need to make sure that we, that we, we remove all idols from our life, but we fill up our life with altars, memorials of God's goodness. Can I say this this morning? Moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, I'm, with, I'm in the same boat as you guys. Our kids are watching, and they can see the things that are idols or altars in our lives. They know the difference. And we need to choose to tear down the idols and build up the altars so that they can walk with God in the days ahead. Amen. All right. My emotions are done. Listen. This... This passage of scripture is so cool. We told a big story there about what happens after Gideon's victory, but we skipped four verses. And within these four verses of the passage that we just read, we skipped some. And I want to go back and look at them really quick because it's really funny how in four verses, there's a really, really important detail that's treated as being a small thing. That if you go back and you read what was really going on in Gideon's life outside of the battlefield victory, hmm, important detail pops up in these four verses. Go back with me real quick to verse 29. Look at this, talking about Gideon's life. Then Jerob Baal, the son of Joash, or Gideon, remember his father changed his name, went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons. Wait, hold on, hold on. Gideon had seven sons. No, I mean, that would be a lot, but Gideon had 17 sons. No, I read that correct the first time. Gideon had 70, seven zero sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. Yeah. <laughs> now here's the thing. Seven's a lot of kids. 17 is a whole lot of kids. But 7D? That's like more than I can even get my head around. Of course he had many wives, because I don't know one wife that would sign up for that. <laughs> Nor is it physically possible. 
I was actually doing the math. I'm like, man, how many wives would it take to create 70 sons? <laughs> of course he had many wives. But guess what? That wasn't all. Look at verse 31. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son. Well, 70 wasn't enough. There's 71. And Gideon named him Abimelech. Remember that name, Abimelech. And Gideon, verse 32, the son of Joash, died at a ripe old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abiezrites. Now, if you're taking notes, here's the second thought I want to give you this morning. Again, we're talking about building legacies, not just leaving legends, all right? Number two, a life of public victories cannot overcome a life of private failures. A life of public victories cannot overcome a life of private failures. Now, I say this humbly. It might not be fair of me to say that Gideon was a failure in his private life. Like, Scripture doesn't give us enough detail about his dealings with, you know, wives. I mean, it just sounds funny saying plural wives. And by the way, that always brings up a lot of questions. You know, was God okay with, you know, people having, men having multiple wives in the Old Testament? My conviction when you read the entirety of Scripture was that was always God's plan that men would only have one wife. That's what I personally believe. That's the model that's given to us at creation. Paul affirms it later on for church leadership, husband of one wife. So I don't think it was God's plan necessarily or his will for people to have more than that. And let's just be honest, having more than one would be really, really hard. I didn't say to say amen, Mike. Let's just be honest. That's, that's the way I see Scripture. So we don't know that Gideon had all these failures in his private life. But what we do see is that after Gideon dies, there's a big mess that's left behind. Now, we're going to come back to that in a minute, but let's talk for a minute about integrity. Okay? A life of public victories cannot overcome a life of private failures. Integrity is such an interesting word. We spent some time talking about this with our school ministry class a few weeks ago. And I got to speak with them, and I asked the question, what's integrity? And the answer that I got most often was, integrity is when you are the same person in public as you are when nobody's looking. Well, I think that's a really good definition of character. But when you look at the word integrity, it actually comes from a Latin word, which is integer. And there's an English word integer, which is a mathematical term. But the Latin word integer really means wholeness or completeness. So when we talk about integrity, if that's what it means, integrity means that every area, every compartment, every fraction of my life is whole, sound, or healthy. Make sense to everybody? Now, with that said, if that's what integrity is, it brings me to a place, and I heard a pastor teach about this several years ago, and I love this teaching. It was so good. It brings me to a place where I'm reminded that a lot of us, when we think about integrity, can sometimes have the Titanic Syndrome. You might be wondering, Zach, what is the Titanic syndrome? How many of you have heard of the Titanic? It was a ship that, you know, sailed off in the early part of the 20th century. Leonardo DiCaprio died in its voyage. And (laughs) the Titanic was the first ship of its kind that was built with a segmented hull. The hull of the boat was built in segments. And the theory was that if one, one segment of the hull were to take on water, the rest of the boat would continue to float. So let's just say there was a leak or, I don't know, you ran into an iceberg or something like that. One area of the hull could take on water, but the rest of the ship would continue to float. That made sense in theory, except we all know the rest of the story, right? And it would be kind of like this. It would be as if I decided to go fishing, and I looked down at Joe, and I said, Hey, Joe, do you want to go fishing with me? And Joe's like, Yeah, great. I don't have a fishing boat, but I borrowed somebody's fishing boat. So me and Joe go fishing, and he sits on one side of the boat, and I sit on the other, and it's peaceful, And it's quiet. 
And Joe's casting out into the deep looking for some, I don't know, largemouth bass or whatever. And he's casting out, and we're sitting there in the peace and in the quiet, and as he casts out, he hears a sound. And he looks over, and I'm sitting on the other side of the boat, and I have a power drill. And I stick it down into the floor of the boat. And Joe looks at me and says, Zach, what are you doing? Oh, don't worry, Joe. I got this. Yeah, hold on. If you take this power drill to the boat, there's going to be a problem. Hey, Joe, why don't you stay on your side of the boat, and I'll stay on my side of the boat. Everything's cool. You just stay on your side. Your side will be fine, and I'm going to stay on mine. That's foolish thinking. Why? Because a hole in the boat is a hole in the boat is a hole in the boat. And a lot, of our t- a lot of us, we live our lives thinking that we can allow one area of our life to take on water and the rest of it will continue to float. I didn't come up with that analogy. The point is, true integrity is when er- every fraction, every portion, every section of my life has true health, completeness, or wholeness. That way the whole is actually integris. God doesn't want us to go out through the rest of our lives thinking that one area can take on water and the rest is gonna be okay, because it's not. Now, it's here that we see things begin to shift. Now, follow me. Gideon was seen as a conquering hero publicly to his nation, and even though his private shortcomings did not hurt his reputation in his lifetime, he left a mess for the next generation to clean up. And it's clear that they did not know how to honor God with their lives. If we want to leave a legacy of God's faithfulness to the next generation, we have to pursue private integrity, not just public image. Private integrity, not just public image. Now, you might be wondering, how do we know that Gideon left a mess behind for his family? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. I'm going to explain. Because it brings us to where we're going to land today. Scripture says that Gideon had one son, Abimelech, that his concubine bore him. Now, not a lot of time to talk about concubines, but concubines were somebody that kind of had a relationship with the man, but didn't have wife privileges. They didn't have all the blessing, all the other provisions that wives did. Concubines were over here. They were taken care of, but didn't have all the same privileges. Abimelech was the son that was born out of that relationship. But what we know about Gideon and his formal wives is that they gave him 70 kids. And all of those 70 sons would have looked at Abimelech and said, dude, you're like the illegitimate one. You're the black sheep. You don't fit in. You're not a part of this. So Abimelech is already over here looking at the rest of his brothers thinking, why are you guys entitled to anything more than I would be? Because I'm a son of the same father. I don't get it. So Gideon dies, and Abimelech realizes after his father's death that there's now a power void. Because remember, they wanted to make Gideon their king, but Gideon said no. The the people wanted Gideon to rule over them, and again, he said no. So if God clearly isn't in charge of this mess, Abimelech sees an opportunity to make himself the king. And Abimelech goes to Ophrah. This is Gideon's hometown. Abimelech lives in Shechem, where his mom, who was Gideon's concubine, was from, He lives there. He goes to his half-brother's hometown of Ophrah with a group of men that he has rallied together, and Scripture says he kills all of his half-brothers. All of this was birthed out of insecurity, jealousy, and a need for power and insecurity. He goes to Ophrah, and he kills all of his brothers, but there's actually one that remains. He had a brother named Jotham, who escapes this slaughter while the other 69 brothers, we believe, were all killed, Scripture says, on the same stone. 
So Jotham runs away, and Jotham realizes, my father didn't want to rule over this nation. He didn't want his son or his grandson to rule over this nation. But now my half-brother is trying to kill all of us and insert himself as king, which was never God's idea or plan in the first place. In other words, Abimelech is setting himself up not just to be king, but really to be an idol further to the nation of Israel. And something amazing happens, and we're going to finish this in the time that we have remaining today, but in Judges 9... Jotham tells a parable when Jotham realizes what's happened. Now, if you were to just read this passage of Scripture on its own, you'd be like, what in the world is going on here? I don't even understand this. When you read the Gospels, Jesus wanted to communicate with audiences, so he spoke in parables, and it helped people to understand the principle he wanted to deliver, okay? So Jotham goes, and he stands up on Mount Gerizim above all the people in Shechem, and he begins to tell this parable to help them understand the idolatry they're stepping into if they want to make Abimelech their king. So watch this. Judges 9, next chapter, verse 6. All the men of Shechem and all Beth Milo assembled together, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar, which was in Shechem. Now when they told Jotham, he went and stood on the top of Mount Gerizim, lifted his voice, and called out, saying, Listen to me, O men of Shechem, that God may listen to you. Now watch this parable that he tells. This is a story Jotham tells to illustrate the point he wants to make. Once the trees, verse 8, went forth to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, olive tree, reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, shall I leave my fatness? If you look at other translations here, it says, shall I walk away from producing my oil? The oil that I was created to make? Shall I walk away or leave my fatness with which God and men are honored and go to wave over the trees? In other words, you want to make me your king, trees? I wasn't created to do that. That's not God's will and purpose for my life. I was created to just produce oil and olives. That's my purpose. And so the olive tree says no. Look at verse 10. Then the trees said to the fig tree, you come and you reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go to wave over the trees? Man, the fig tree and the olive tree are on the same page here. Why are you coming to us trying to make us your king? God didn't create us to do that. I mean, this was a really good opportunity for the fig tree. Let's be honest. We don't really care for figs unless it's like fig newtons, figgy pudding. Like we like apples and oranges and avocados and things like that. Fig doesn't get a whole lot of love. The trees want to make the fig their king. And he's like, that's not the purpose that I was created for. Verse 12, then the trees said to the vine of the grapevine, you come and you reign over us. But the vine said to them, shall I leave my new wine, which cheers God and man, and go to wave over the trees? And we see here that the grapevine has the same revelation. That's not what I was created to do. I have a purpose from which God created me, and that's not it. So I'm not going to walk away from that purpose. Watch what happens next in this parable. Verse 14, finally, all the trees said to the bramble. You read this in other translations, and it says, The other trees said to the thorn bush, You, come and reign over us. And the thorn bush said to the trees, If in truth you are anointing me as king over you, come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, may fire come out from the bramble and consume the cedars of Lebanon. Now, here's what you got to catch. The bramble is the thorn bush. The trees have gone to the other trees or vines looking for a king, and they're all like, no, that's not why God created me. That's not my purpose. See, the thorn bush produces no fruit, only thorns. It produces no fruit or sustenance. It gives no shade, and it gives no shelter. 
In other words, when we go crowning little G gods and putting idols on the throne of our lives, we lay down under things that give us nothing in return. Imagine laying down underneath a thorn bush looking for fruit, looking for shade, looking for shelter. And this is what happens when we form idols in our lives. This parable paints a perfect picture. Abimelech was like, I'll be the next idol and king in your life. Jotham understood, if you choose to accept idols in your life, you might think it's gonna bring you good things, but eventually you'll find yourself laying down under something that provides you no shade, no shelter, no provision, and no protection. What an amazing parable he tells in Judges 9. And somehow, someway, Jotham expressed wisdom to Shechem that day, the entire town. What happens at the end of this story is that Abimelech, who wants to be their king, is crowned their king. Now, you might be thinking, wasn't Saul the first king of Israel? That's right, because this was a conspiracy and God was never in this. By the very next chapter, Abimelech, who's been crowned their king, is dead, and so are all of his men. Jotham has run away and never mentioned again in scripture, and there is no generation left to tell the story of what God did through their father. See, last week we talked about what a great thing God had done in that battle. And today we're talking about how nobody was left to tell the story. That's heartbreaking. I don't want to give this message just to parents and grandparents today. I believe that whether you have you know, natural kids of your own or not, God puts all of us in positions or spheres of influence where he brings people around us that we can speak into their lives and pour into their lives so that they have an encounter with God that can be passed on to the following generations as well. I want to say to every person in the house this morning, if we treat God like a legend, then the story just might end with us and not make it to our kids and our grandkids. In fact, I got one more point for you this morning. It's simply this, the third thought. Legacies are built on lordship. Legends are built on lore, L-O-R-E. Legacies are built on lordship. Legends are built on lore. That word lore stands out to me. The actual definition of the word lore is traditions or knowledge held by a particular group of people, usually passed person to person by word of mouth. Do you know what that sounds like? Sounds like religion. Legends told, believed by a particular group of people. It's not good enough for her, our kids just to hear stories about God. Our kids need to know God for themselves. It's not good to just hand on religion and say, well, just go to church and hope it's all good. No, we need to teach our kids that they can have a personal relationship with God Almighty who loves them, who cares for them, and sent his son to die for them so they could be in that relationship with him. This morning in closing, I want to pray a prayer. It's a little bit different. Idolatry is such a huge theme in the book of Judges. And in talking about this, it can certainly come off like, oh, pastor, sounds like you're really pointing the finger. I gotta go home and expel all these idols. I'll tell you what, this is something we all deal with in our daily lives. Taking an inventory of what's there and what's sitting on the throne of my life. And there are three specific words that come to mind that I wanna pray about. This is what I think we need to do if we wanna kick out the idols and make Jesus truly the Lord of our life and build a legacy. First thing is recognition. I gotta stop and recognize, is there an idol sitting on the throne of my life somewhere, anywhere, in any position. I gotta recognize it. Secondly, I gotta repent. We don't talk enough about repentance anymore in the church. A change of heart, a change of mind, and a change of direction. We receive the truth and God calls us to walk in a new way. 
I want to tell you this morning, friends, God didn't save you in the place you are to leave you there. He wants you to walk in his ways and in his righteousness. If we are in Christ, we are new creations, not the same old thing with the same old habits. He wants us to recognize, is there idolatry in my life? Secondly, he wants us to repent. And thirdly, he wants to bring restoration into our lives. The psalmist said, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. He wants to bring us to to that fresh place of salvation with him where we recognize, God, I put you on the throne of my life and I'm not gonna allow anything else to sit there but you. Father, this morning as your people, we come to you. We just take an inventory. We look around our lives and ask the question, is there anything that's sitting on a throne that you desire to sit on? Have we kicked you off in any area of our lives? If so, Father, right now we recognize it. But we don't stay there. God, we repent. We repent, Father. We repent if we have put anything else on your rightful throne in our life. We reject it. We push it aside. We cast it out never to return. We make you our Lord. And then finally, God, we ask for restoration, that you would restore to us the joy of our salvation. Truly be our God. Truly be our Lord. Truly be our Savior so that we can walk in everything you have for us and leave a legacy of your goodness and faithfulness behind us in Jesus' name. With heads bowed for just one more moment, we're gonna conclude here in just a few. Maybe you're here this morning and when we talk about legacy, you say, Zach, nobody ever handed me anything. I don't know God. I'm not so sure that I have a relationship with him. Scripture makes it so clear that it's our sin, it's our imperfection, our failure that separates us from God. But God in his goodness and his grace sent Jesus, his son, his very best, to come and die a death that we deserve for our sin. He gave his very best in exchange for our very worst. That we would believe in him, the sacrifice he made for us, give him all the junk. He would forgive us and walk us right back into relationship with God. See, the beauty of it is that Jesus didn't just die to forgive us. Three days after he died, God raised him from the dead, conquering death, hell, and the grave for all of eternity so that you and I would not have to face it. This morning, if you'd like to come into a relationship with God, all you gotta do is put your faith in Jesus. Believe it with everything inside and confess it with your own mouth that you put faith in him today. I'm gonna lead you in a prayer right now. You don't even have to use my words. You can make it your own, but I'm gonna pray a prayer to lead you in that direction. I wanna ask if everybody would take a moment and pray this prayer with me. Father, this morning we choose to give our lives to you because we believe that Jesus is your son who died on the cross for our sins. We want him to be the savior of our lives, but this morning we recognize you're calling us further than that. You want to be our Lord, the master, the king of our lives. Lord, so we invite you in to come and sit on the throne of our lives. We choose to follow you, to be your disciples all the days of our life. From this day forward, we will follow you into eternity. In Jesus' name, amen. Maybe this morning you prayed that prayer in your own words or just repeated mine right after that. However you did that, we want to welcome you into the family of God this morning because we're so glad you made that decision. And we have a free gift we would love to give you if you made that decision just to help you start walking this out. It's called The Next Seven Days. It's a simple book we would love to put in your hand. As soon as service is over, which is just going to be in a couple of minutes, we'll have prayer teams down here in front of the platform. You can walk up to one of our prayer teams, let them know you made that decision to follow Jesus. You want to get the book, and we'll give it to you. We don't need anything from you, but we're here to help in any way that we can. If you need special prayer, hey, come see one of our prayer teams. That's why they are here. Take advantage of that. 
And if you need to go quickly at the end of service, just stop by the next seven days desk. It's right between the glass doors before you exit the building, okay? We would love to help you get started in your walk with God. So as a family, can we just put our hands together this morning and welcome others into God's family today? Awesome. Okay, two important things I want to share with you before we go this morning. This is a time and service where we honor God by bringing our tithes and our offerings into the house. First thing I want to say above all else is thank you. Thank you guys so much for your generosity. Thank you for putting God first in the area of your finance, your treasure. Together, we get to do so much more than we could ever do on our own. And it's great to be a part of a generous church. So I honor you guys and I say thank you for your generosity. If you came prepared to give this morning, there are ways that you can give on the screen. If you'd like to give, you just felt prompted right now, you can choose whatever option is most convenient for you. But we thank you again for your generosity. Two things though. First of all, today we conclude receiving uh, all of the food and turkeys for our Thanksgiving food drive. We're gonna be distributing Thanksgiving meals to people next Sunday morning between services. Those people who are in need might be facing financial hardship and we are so excited to get to do that. And we know it's only because of your generosity and partnering with us. So thank you so much. Let me also say, there are many of you that whether you're bringing turkeys or food, you made a financial contribution, a donation, over the last couple of Sundays toward this food drive, and we are overwhelmed with your generosity. We're gonna be able to provide a lot of food for a lot of people over these next few days, and we're grateful for that. So again, thank you so very much for being so generous. And then the very last thing, you know, when you get done with Thanksgiving, you start to bump into Christmas, and there's all kinds of other needs that are represented and opportunities for us as a church family to be a blessing to our community. So today, we wanna just put a bug in your ear about something that's gonna be happening over the next two weeks. We have our Christmas gift initiative that's happening and it begins next week. If you here in our church are, are in a situation where you are facing financial hardship and you have questions about whether or not you're gonna be able to provide gifts for your kids, listen, we don't think any kids should go without gifts this Christmas. So we wanna do our very best to partner together and make a difference in people's lives by providing gifts. So here's the deal. If that's you, we wanna honor your, your privacy. We wanna be discreet about this. Next Sunday morning, after both of our morning services, through those double doors right over there, the south hallway, you can just walk through there. We'll have a team there to honor your privacy. They'll just, uh, be able to answer a few questions about our Christmas gift initiative and how it is that we might be able to help you out. Not only that, but we're gonna be providing gifts as well through some community partners and local schools. We had uh, new partnerships that we formed with teachers this past summer, and they're helping us to get the word out and also be a blessing to families who are facing financial hardship as well, okay? So we wanna start that next week. You can come and submit the names of your kids. Couple quick details you need to know. If that's you and you wanna submit, we're gonna be taking submissions from parents and legal guardians, okay? That's who we'll be receiving that from. Just bring a birth certificate so we can verify all that information and make sure that we're doing all this on the up and up, okay? But we wanna come alongside families. This is not us trying to step in and be the hero for families. We're not gonna be giving the kids uh, gifts directly. We're gonna come alongside and give the parents those gifts to give to their kids because we wanna be a blessing to them and play a part of a partner with all those families, all right? So that starts next Sunday if you'd like to participate in that. And then we will give you all the details in just a couple of weeks of how you can purchase gifts for those kids whose names were submitted, all right? Hey, I hope that you've enjoyed being in church today. We love you guys. Have an amazing Sunday. Have a great week. We'll see you in the house next weekend.